If you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Uh, The Gospel of John, chapter 10. We're going to be reading uh, 10, verses 22 to 42. So, my name's Raj. Hello, everyone. Hello. Uh, If you're a visitor, as I said, you're very welcome. This morning, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series, um, looking at the Gospel of John. Um, And we're heading towards the completion of the second of four parts that make up this phenomenal account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Um, As we explore together, going through this book, the amazing, ginormous question uh, that this book is gradually unfolding to us, layer by layer, revealing to us bit by bit, who is this man, Jesus? What has he got to do with me? How does Jesus' story affect humanity and our day-to-day, the story of the world? Um, Dr. Francis Collins, um, who is the director of the Human Genome Project uh, worldwide, big brain, man with a big brain, he said this, I'd arrived at an answer to the most important question we humans have to deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was meant to be a scientist. That's what he said. I'm hoping, Jubilee, as we move through chapter by chapter, that you're getting a feel for who Jesus claims to be. That his claims are unique and penetrating. That no one else, no other faiths talk about God like this, personal, with us, a God-man who put his feet in our shoes, life-changing. So let's read John 10, 22-42. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem, also called Hanukkah. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered there around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, Jesus, tell us plainly. Well, Jesus answered them, and he didn't disappoint them either. He said, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. (gasps) Again, the Jewish... Uh, opponents picked up stones and they were about to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, your Bible, I have said your God, uh, I have said you are gods, and if he called them gods, 
to whom the word came, the, the, uh, uh, God's people at the time, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one who the Father set apart, Jesus, as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Once again, um, deliberately, offensively, Jesus is using one of these Jewish feast days, as we've just heard, when he's claiming that he is the true temple, the place where earth and heaven meet. And as we've just read, he says, I and the Father are one. Essentially, he's saying, I am God. And you know what? That's why. That's why the opponents of uh, Jesus are ready to stone him. This is, this is a scary moment. Yeah? It's a, it's a scary moment. Jesus is about to be electrocuted right there. And so we've talked about, and so actually we've talked about this a few times, about Jesus saying who he is. You know, how we've looked at miraculous signs and encounters and controversies and first day, uh, first feast day declarations. So instead of repeating all that again this morning, I want to approach this passage slightly differently. This morning, I want us to look at the importance of Scripture, yeah? our Bibles, and what it says, and, and, and what it says, and why as Christians do we take the Bible so seriously? And right here, as we've just read, as it is uh, throughout the uh, New Testament account, Jesus is our model, right? I don't know if you got that. That probably wasn't the main part of the story, but we living now, um, in, a, in, a, in a culture that thinks reading a book is something archaic. This is very important to us, and we can learn a lot from Jesus. So firstly, um, so firstly I just want to say, can, I want to ask the question, can we trust the Bible at all? Okay? You know what? That's a very good question. I never used to believe that was the case myself, um, that became actually one of my greatest quests, if you like, after becoming a Christian when I was significantly younger than now. Even though I'd encountered Jesus through the presentation of Christianity on Alpha, now the biggest issue for me was if this book is to become so important to me, and I knew it had to, then I needed to know what was in it was really true. See verse 31 in our uh, passage this morning. How in the midst of a very dangerous situation, a tense moment, just before the Pharisees are about to execute um, Jesus, he says, shall we have a Bible study? Did you notice that? It says 31, again his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him and Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law I have said you are gods. He's quoting Psalm 82. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the people of God at the time, and scripture, he says, cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? He's talking about himself, Jesus. 
He's saying, look, you're, look, you're about to stone me, but, but can I take you? you know, in the midst of this, he's saying, look, you're about to stone me, but can I take you to Psalm 82? Notice there, Psalm 82 isn't the law, as they would have known it. Uh, their first few books of the Bible were taken as law. Psalm was songs and other types of things. But because he knows, Jesus knows, that the Bible is God, all of the Bible, the whole Bible is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that every servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Timothy, uh, Paul tells us that, doesn't he? He knew that. Jesus knew that. So he takes them to a slightly unusual bit of uh, um, the Bible of their day, takes them to Psalm 82 and says, you are supposed to be God's. Images of, uh, uh, image, uh, you, are, you are supposed to be God's images on the earth, declaring the wonder of him who created you. And I am the very God now come in person um, uh, to reveal truth in all its reality and glory, and you want to execute me, that doesn't make sense. The Bible study leads to a profound moment. He says, come on, gentlemen, get with it. Look at your Bible, Jesus says. Scripture cannot be set aside. That's what he's getting at. Our modern world doesn't like that, does it? It doesn't like the authority of the Bible. It, if if, if, it, if, it, if, if it helps you, if it's true for you, then that's fine for you, but it doesn't have to be true for me. That's what modern-day individualistic culture says. Jesus classic categorically says no to that. He says, don't, he says, don't come to Christianity just because it's relevant or inspirational, although it definitely is. He says, don't come to Christianity because it's exciting although it definitely is that too. He says, he says, don't even come to Christianity because it will meet your needs, although it certainly will. Jesus says, only, only come to Christianity because it's true. Scripture jubilee cannot be set aside. That's the only way. That's controversial. Virtually all the historians now, without a doubt, uh, agree that Jesus was a true living person. Historians have written extensively about that, about it. But, but more people these days have a slightly sceptical and dubious approach when it comes to what's written about Jesus in the Bible. They say maybe something like this. Over the years, Jesus' followers who were completely biased and brainwashed, who wanted to further their control over the crowd, started to make up tales, fairy tales about him. And over time, these got changed and exaggerated, a bit like a massive generational game of Chinese whispers. And eventually, um, someone wrote a book about him to further their cause and power. And so today, we don't really know what's true or not, or what's rubbish. That's how people look at the Bible or think about the Bible before they've really read it. But you know what? Historically, that doesn't hang true either. So I'm going to quickly spend a few moments, a few things about, about that, because it's important if we are to read the Bible as the Word of God, we need to know that it's not a load of rubbish, but actually it's true. Firstly, I'm only going to 
very briefly talk about three things. There's loads of stuff, but you do want your Sunday dinners today, so we'll um, move on and just mention three. Firstly, virtually all historians recognize that the Bible accounts of Jesus weren't written like phony legends, like Hercules and whatever, but much more like an investigating journalist. Like you would see like on the 10 o'clock news, they were far too detailed in form to be imaginary stories, fairy tales, legends of the day. Take, for instance, the Gospel of Luke, written by a well-respected doctor of the time. And it starts like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by the first witnesses. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of these things you have been taught. That was important to Luke. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I wasn't an eyewitness, and he's very upfront about that, but do you know what? I saw the eyewitnesses. I've carefully interviewed lots of them. I've gathered the details from various stories. I've compared various accounts. I've put them together in such a way that you can be certain that these things happened. (laughs) And you know what? In ancient times, legends just weren't written like this. Epics, myths, were not written like that. Read Beowulf or uh, Roman myths or the Iliad or uh, Greek myths. Go read anything. They just don't start like that. That's not how they're written. C.S. Lewis, uh, Oxford and Cambridge professor, a real expert in ancient literature, says this. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. He's written a few. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like the New Testament writings. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, in other words, factual, journalistic uh, news presentation, or else someone, some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or uh, or successors, suddenly anticipated a whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic writing. The reader, the reader who doesn't see this, has simply not read at all. He's saying it's not true. And he's a professor, so he's allowed to be a bit condescending at the end. But here's the point. These writings don't have the form of legends because they were written as factual truth. Secondly, the New Testament accounts of Jesus were written far too early to be legends. When, when research and archaeology look at this stuff, um, most of the Bible accounts were written only 70, uh, were written only around 70 years after Jesus died. These accounts weren't written hundreds and hundreds and generations and generations after the events. That's fact. In fact, some, some of the Apostle Paul's letters were, re, were written even 15 to 20 years after Jesus died. And if you're studying things like this, those facts are very important. Why? Well, if you're going to make up stories and get away with it, if you're going to write stories and get away with it, you have to write those stories after all the eyewitnesses 
and close generations are dead. Otherwise, everybody who was there, they'll just grass you up. They'll say, hold on, that's rubbish. That's not true. I was there. The Apostle Paul, only 15 years after Jesus died, wrote a public document, a letter to the church at Corinth. He wrote, after that, his resurrection, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. It was real, most of whom are still living, though some have uh, fallen asleep. If you wrote that kind of public stuff about Jesus during the life of many witnesses, and it wasn't true, you would not get away with it. You wouldn't. Thirdly, the Bible documents of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and what happened afterwards in the New Testament writing, what happened afterwards to his followers are too counterproductive. They're too negative for them to be myths. See, look, if I'm a church leader living in um, se- living about 70, 80 years after Jesus, and I'm goofing up these stories, and I'm uh, uh, and um, would I put in there, for instance, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane cried out to his Father in heaven, "Get me out of this mess, please. This is awful. Take this cup away from me." Would you, the, would you have the Creator of the world saying that kind of stuff? Is that what you'd put into a phony? document. It's right there in the Bible, though. Would you record our hero, Jesus, who you're building your whole baloney story in, allegedly, on the cross saying, God, why, uh, why have you left me in this abysmal mess alone? Why have you forsaken me? It doesn't sound like the best way of successfully deceiving people to me. How about this one? Women in these ancient stories historically were considered lowly. That was the culture of the time. This was a time when a woman's testimony in a court of law was thought of as as rubbish, unbelievable, because of their low social status in ancient culture. Yet Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John All say the original eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, what you're building your whole story on, the resurrection, were all women. Not a good idea. Not only that, the leaders of the early church were the successors of the apostles. When you actually get into the New Testament and see the apostles apostles on virtually every page of the Gospels, turn them over, turn them over, it makes the apostles look like jerks. They look like fools. They look like cowards. They look terrible. Why would you put that stuff in? You wouldn't. The only possible explanation for them being in the text is if it actually happened. And also, tragically, most of these New Testament writers were executed for their faith. That's just fact. They were homeless, beaten, hated, exiled, hung on a cross upside down, decapitated, murdered. There were no incentives whatsoever to make all this stuff up. The famous philosopher and scientist Blaise Pascal said this, 
I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. If you're going to treat this book as the very revelation of God to you, you need to get that it is believable. That's why I've spent a few moments just unpacking a few things. Not to take your brains out and read, don't fit, and not to read, kind of not to read and think about it exercise. Not a blind leap of faith. Look at the very center of Christianity is the Bible, a book for goodness sake. Of course it's for thinkers and studiers and those who want to grapple and research the truth. It must be. That was very important to me when I became a Christian. Secondly, the Bible points to Jesus. All of it. Once we've got over the hurdle that it's true and that we, uh, then we can get to its main purpose, if you like, of who it truly points to. Whether it's revelation backwards uh, to the Gospels or Genesis forward to the Gospels, every story and principle and song and poem and letter is building to a ginormous climax. Jesus, the Savior of the world. That's the big deal about Christmas, isn't it? When we had our Christmas service, God breaks in. Remember this? Mountains would have bowed down. Seas would have roared. Trees would have clapped their hands. But the earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, he came in. And when no one was looking in the darkness, he came. You remember that from the Christmas service, don't you? When Jesus had risen from the dead, Remember how he hid his identity from some of the disciples as, the, as he followed them on the, on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. How they were downcast, heads down, as they thought all that had happened with Jesus was now over. What a waste of time, hopes, dreams shattered. We thought this one was the Messiah, the Christ from the royal line of David. King David, who would, have brought down, who would have brought down the Romans and set us free? That's what they were thinking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes up to, him, uh, up to them. And so in the midst of their sorrow and grief, what does Jesus do again? He does a Bible study. Maybe one of the most thrilling Bible studies ever. Luke 24, 25, he said, to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. All the prophets have spoken. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's all about Jesus. We see it here in our passage too when Jesus refers to the sheep and the shepherd kind of picture that he started in chapter 9 to the Pharisees, there was no mistaking what he was saying. That's why they wanted to stone him. He's making it crystal clear that he is, the, he is like King David. He is from the line of King David. He is like King David, but only more so. God so, Messiah so. Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century reformist, said this, and I love this. The Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. 
Listen, you can read the Bible as if it's all about you and a whole lot of things that you've got to do. Go ahead, but it will crush you. Or you can read the Bible as a story, as good news, um, as joy news, as phenomenal news, pointing to a Savior who through His works has set you free, who will make all the sad things come untrue. And you know what? If you read it that way, if you do that, if that's how you read it, take it in, digest it, then and only then will it enthrall you, captivate you, change you. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to bring, that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God through Jesus is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Finally, the Bible is life-transforming. It's life-transforming. <clears throat> yes, it's real. Yes, it reveals the beauty and glory of God. Yes, it points to the wonder and reality of Jesus. But if we stop there, we've shortchanged ourselves. Even the devil believes all of that. Don't believe me? James 2.19 tells us, you believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. That's what James tells us. To be life-changing, to address the greatest issues of humanity all of, and all of our self-centeredness and pride and arrogance and wanting to live life without God's sin, you've got to submit to it. You've got to live under it. You've, you've got to let God the Holy Spirit to speak to you through it. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I have come to give you life to the full. I am the resurrection and the life. I want this life. I want, if, you want, if you want this life, this life that Jesus so often talks about, you must come, you must come to this book and make it alive in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. We were talking about that. Jonathan was talking about that as we had an... Um, um, a day just looking at different things that are important to us as Jubilee and integrity and what the Bible says. But you know what? People think very differently. That's our culture, isn't it? People don't like submitting to anything these days, yet alone the Bible. Christians alike. But let me tell you, a truly authoritative Bible, a, a book that we live under, is actually the very thing that results in a warm, personal relationship with God, not a cold, legalistic one. Let me tell you what I mean. Now, Charlotte and I love each other. We do, don't we? <laughs> the pressure, she couldn't say no. But very, very occasionally, about once every leap year, we have a disagreement. And maybe as an extreme, probably about once every decade, we have a full-blown row. But do you know what? In those very moments of disagreement and dispute and also 
through the tough times that we've gone through, our relationship has changed and grown us individually and together. You see, in any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you, challenge you, offend you, sometimes fight you. There's a film called The Stepford Wives. And in this film, these, um, these husbands of the fictional town Stepford uh, decide to have their wives turned into robots who never cross them, who always allow them to do what they want, who never have disagreements or disputes. These Stepford, Stepford wives were wonderfully compliant and beautiful. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But attractive as that might somewhat seem, and guys, stop nodding your heads so enthusiastically, as good as that might seem, it's a million miles away from a close, life-changing, intimate relationship with my wife. And get this, if that's the case with human relationships, how much more so is it true of our relationship with God. And that's the deal with an authoritative Bible, a Bible we submit to. This book challenges you, sometimes offends you, crosses your will, sometimes points out your faults. And in that, God the Holy Spirit chisels away for His glory and for your good. If you approach the Bible and pick and choose what you like and bin the rest, how can you ever have a relationship with the one who it's all pointing to? You won't you'll end up creating a Stepford God. A God essentially of your own making and not, God who can, not a God who can genuinely transform you. Uh, uh, not, not a relationship that is genuinely transforming or a genuine interaction. We don't want a cardboard cutout Jesus, do we? We want the one who brings life. Look, the Bible isn't an enemy of a personal relationship with God. It's exactly the precondition for it. If the band can come up, that would be great. And actually, if you can start just playing something in the background, we're not going to end with a song today. We're not going to end with a song today. Oh. If you can start taking the offering... That would be really helpful. I'm glad it's Sarush who's missed it this week. If you're a visitor, you're very welcome. Uh, please pass the buckets round. You're very welcome to pass the buckets round. But we want, we'd like to give everybody the opportunity to give to what we do here. That's part of our worship. Let's get back to this. So if you guys can just play some background music, we're going to end with a, a reading to the music. Look, listen, listen. We want to encourage everybody in this room and who aren't here, so you're going to tell them about it, to read the Bible. Do Nicky Gumbel's Bible in one year. Go to God's Big Picture next Thursday as Luke unpacks a whole lot of stuff at Melbourne House. Look at the questions we put together and send out on Church App, which you sometimes might look at in your community groups. Get some good commentaries and slow down. But whatever it is, Jubilee, let's read the Bible.
As Augustine of Hippo once wrote, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. Read and enjoy the Bible. Read and enjoy what, who God is. Trust Him. Love Him. I'm going to... Uh, some of you might think that I read all sorts of different versions of the Bible, but really the only Bible I read is this one, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I also, actually, I read the Madhu Jeffrey's Curry Bible as well, but that's different. I'm going to read it. The heavens are singing about how great God is, and the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made. Day after day, night after night, they are speaking to us. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message jubilee everywhere. Because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror. To show us what he is like. To help us know him. To make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail. The way red poppies grow wild. The way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should do and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some things to do in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done in Jesus. Other people might think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people who you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. And at times, they're just sometimes downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to, the, to rescue the one he loves, you and me. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story how God loves His children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story and at the center of the story there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, 
suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are an amazing God. And I thank you, Lord, for the revelation of the Bible to us. And I pray more and more we will get the beauty and wonder of this amazing book because those words are yours, your words. God-breathed, inspired. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that we'll rise in joy and celebration every time we use, read it. I pray, Lord God, that they challenge us. I pray, Lord God, that they speak to us when we're drifting in the wrong direction. I pray, Lord, those words pull us back in. I pray, Lord God, that as we read the Bible, those barriers that we spoke about this morning are lifted. I pray, Lord God, as we read the Bible, we get excited about an open heaven, that the gates have been pushed open wide and the glory of God has come to reign amongst us. Spirit of God, we love you. You are an awesome God. We trust you. You are a healing God. You are a hopeful God. We love you. Amen. Thank you, Lord.